our week seven, uh, working through this Judges series, and I suspect that you're seeing this cycle on full display each and every time that we open the text, where there's this moment where Israel kind of falls into rebellion, they walk away with the Lord, oppression arrives, a judge kind of emerges and kind of cries out for help, and that cycle continues to unfold, and with every time that cycle unfolds, two things are happening in the text that you have to see. One is um, Israel, even though a new judge arises and they are kind of freed, uh, it's like they're forever getting worse in both the quality of judge and where they are as a people. So even though they have, have this cycle, that cycle is getting worse and worse and worse and worse while we work our way through, and it's on full display in this text this morning. Um, if you have your Bible, you can open to Judges chapter 10, verse 6. This is where we're going to begin. Uh, we're going to jump right into the story, and we're looking at a guy named Jephthah. And uh, note to your parents, don't name your kids Jephthah, and you'll realize why when this is all over. Uh, Judges 10, 6, it reads this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, worshiping the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. Thus, they abandoned the Lord and they did not worship him. This text in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, is highlighting uh, a spiritual buffet, so to speak. There are seven different named gods to worship in this text. Each one of them were present in the nation of Israel's life. Each one of them has shaped their own people, but also the people of Israel, influencing them in one way or another. That number grows to eight if you throw Yahweh, the God of Israel, into the mix. And this buffet of worship options, they all have their own beliefs, they all have their own practices, they all have their own quote-unquote sacred practices, if you will. And to go one step further, it was becoming harder and harder and harder for the people of God then, and I would even suggest to the people of God now, that to suggest that one of these ways is better than the other was problematic. Most people of this era saw that all of them had value that all of them were in fact equal, and that you could mix and match the beliefs that you liked pending the buffet, you could kind of build your own dish, so to speak, which served you, the human, in the best possible way. What I find fascinating is that this text is written some 3,000 years ago, and yet it describes our world perfectly today. Currently, there is a sizable religious buffet out there, and it's far greater than just seven options, I couldn't even begin to count them all, actually, if I was asked to. There's the classic heavy hitters of Judaism and Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Christianity, and there are subsets and subcultures in each side of those ones, and then you have a myriad of smaller spiritualities that dot the globe. There's a list of different spiritual philosophies and ideas, like the power of positive thinking and karma and the secret, and the list goes on. It is no secret that each one of these religions and each one of these spiritualities and philosophies bring with it their own practices and customs and ideas. And with the options that are out there, we can actually begin to legitimately wonder, is one better than the other? Is there a superior one over another? And I know in our current climate, to suggest that can be deeply problematic to hear and say out loud. But what I find interesting is that we have this space in our world, and we see it in the text then and now, that we kind of try to make this giant kind of stew pot of ideas and make them all fit together. 
some describe this as though it's a celebration of diversity. All of this sounds very good. It sounds very Canadian. But here's the trajectory, and I want you to hear this well, and I know that it's going to conjure up some emotion in you quickly, but I want you to walk with me all the way through this conversation. But when we think like this and live like this, it creates a trajectory where if we fail to recognize the uniqueness of Yahweh, or God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, then inevitably we will pay very little attention to His instruction for life and living. And it results in devastating realities for our day-to-day life. What this slide highlights is on full display in the story of Judges chapter 10 and 11 through this guy named Jephthah. It is clear that to Jephthah in this story, he believes that Yahweh is simply one of many gods of the day. And that the other ways of life that the other gods would highlight are completely fine and acceptable. Jephthah has become completely ignorant or unaware of Yahweh and his ways in the world. And it actually brings devastating realities into his life. There are three moments that highlight this in the text of Scripture through Judges 10 through 11. And the first one is in Judges chapter 11, where it records a letter where Jephthah is writing to the king of the Ammonites. And in the letter he says this. It's on the screen. This is 11 uh, verses 23 and 24. It says this. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before the people of his land, what right... Have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Here's the humor in this moment. Jephthah is speaking as though Chemosh, the God of the Amorites, as though he's an actual God that has the ability to divide up land. As though somehow he's on the same level as Yahweh, as if they are equals. This is a moment where Jephthah believes that Yahweh is merely one among many. He's arguing that both of these gods have provided land for their people, and Jephthah is completely ignorant and unaware that the God in whom he claims he worships and serves, that that, that God, Yahweh, he's already given that land to the Ammonites. In Deuteronomy chapter 2.19, it says, this is God, when you come to the Ammonites, do not harass them or provoke them to war. For I will not give you possession of any land belonging to the Ammonites. I have given it to them as a possession as they are descendants of Lot. So to be clear, Yahweh is the one who has already given this land to the people, the Ammonites, not Chemosh. Why? Because Chemosh is nothing more than a golden statue. He is a completely fabricated deity. To go one step further, Yahweh is the one who gives the land to each nation and each person. He is the one who sets the boundaries and the dividing lines. And Jephthah is completely unaware of this. If we push further into the story of Jephthah's life, there's this second moment, and this gets quite sinister and dark, and if we read this poorly, it has an incredible ability to shape our understanding of who God is in a very negative way. In Judges chapter 11, verses 29 and 31, again, it's on the screen, it reads, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzah and Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will... Be the Lord will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. 
just so you're aware of what's unfolding here, Jephthah has been told by God, this land is going to be yours, and then Jephthah makes a responding vow to say, if you give me this land, when I get home, in the victory dance, the one who comes out of my house first, that person, that thing, that item will be offered up as a sacrifice. And just so you're aware, going back this far in human history, inside a home, it was kind of divided into two halves. There was the people side, and then there was the animal side. So Jephthah, when he makes this claim, is thinking that there's going to be an animal that greets him first, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But what I find humorous, again, is that Jephthah offers up this vow to the Lord even after the Lord has said, no, no, like, you don't need to do this because I'm already giving you the land. It would be like my son Eden saying, like, Dad, like, if you're able to like, actually give me this, like, I'll sacrifice Murray. And Murray's our dog, if just so you're curious. But he's like, I'll sacrifice Murray if you give me this. And I'd be like, you don't need to sacrifice Murray because I've already given you this. And then Eden would be like, no, no, Dad, but I really want to sacrifice Murray for you. I'm like, but you don't need to do this because I've already given you. Like, this is weird. Why are you offering up to kill our dog when I've already given you this? I want to pause here for a moment, unpack this. Jephthah makes this type of deal. He acts this way because he's enamored with the other gods of his day. And he adds a very common practice of the other gods of that day into his practice of how he responds to Yahweh. He has adopted a bartering tactic with Yahweh, a tactic used amongst pagan worship, a tactic that says, if I do this, you'll owe me, and then you'll respond accordingly. This is how people out of history have manipulated the gods, so to speak, for their own purposes. Again, it speaks to his own ignorance to who Yahweh is. God cannot be manipulated. My brother tells a story. They were leaving Costco one time when his oldest daughter was quite young. And she says, hey, Dad and Mom, can we get some ice cream? And Costco ice cream really is legitimately amazing. And they look at Grace and they say, not, not today, Grace. And she looks back at them and she says, if you don't give me ice cream right now, I'm going to scream as loud as I can right now in the store. This is like the human trying to manipulate the gods. My brother, who is every bit as big as me, kneels down to his little daughter and holds her face in his hands. He says, if you scream right now, you will never, ever get Costco ice cream ever again. And they walk out with no ice cream. This is what Jephthah is doing. We do this often in our life. And we need to realize quickly that there are no cards that we can play to manipulate the living God of this world. We cannot control him to our own ends. All we can do is ask and then rely deeply on his grace and mercy. That's all we have as we approach him. Jephthah doesn't understand this, and his understanding of Yahweh is woefully short. Which then this last moment that reveals kind of his ignorance surfaces, and it's tied to this last one that we just highlighted. It's towards the end of chapter 11, it's in verses 34 and 35, and this is the outworking of this vow that he did not need to make to manipulate and barter with the living God. It reads, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzvah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. 
When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried out, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Just so you are aware of this moment, they have arrived home and this vow, this unnecessary vow that Jephthah has made is now coming into focus. This is the, if you give me the victory, I will offer the first one that greets me as a sacrifice to you. And it's his daughter, his only daughter. He is devastated by what he must do because he is convinced that he actually has to do this. Why? Because he's actually adopted a common practice amongst other gods in his own life. Child sacrifice is not new. It's been around for thousands of years. And his understanding has been shaped by these practices to a point where he's willing to offer up his daughter as a human sacrifice. Yahweh is, or sorry, Jephthah is completely ignorant of who Yahweh is and his character, and it's on full display in the text. Jephthah has completely forgotten the words of God in Deuteronomy 12 where he says, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. So Jephthah is completely unaware that God's instruction is, my people don't worship this way. We don't offer up humans in sacrifices because he doesn't require this at all. And Jephthah has hitched his wagon to a stupid vow that if you give me a land that you've already told me that you've given to me, I'll offer up a human to you or the, the first one I meet. And he's unaware of the devastating consequences that are going to come. This gets even dumber. Jephthah is unaware that in Leviticus 27, God has given his people a way out from stupid vows they make like this one. Church family, Jephthah, is this giant example of what happens when we interact with Yahweh as though he is just one of many. This person who never sees his uniqueness will never pay attention to his instruction for life and living. We will experience things that actually grieve the heart of God. And you stop and think of this story of Jephthah. Like, when he follows through and kills his daughter, make no mistake, God is grieving this. Like, you don't need to do this. You don't need to do this. And somehow, in your twisted mind and heart, you think I'm requiring this. You think this is a good thing. Because Jephthah has completely divorced himself from the uniqueness of who Yahweh is. And so it's true in many people's lives. When we fail to see the uniqueness of God, our worship will honestly be divided. And when our worship is divided, we pay very little attention to his instruction as it relates to life and living. And our ability to discern what is right and what is wrong will be completely out of balance. We will agree to things and we will participate in things. We will act in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to others and do not at all lift high the name of God. Do you think God liked that press? Yeah, like I killed my daughter for Yahweh. He's like, please don't say that. I don't require this. You're just a moron. Like, this isn't what I wanted at all from you. And when we act in these ways, make no mistake, God grieves over us because we're missing the mark. We're missing the boat. This is Jephthah. 
he is all over the place as to who he really worships. And because of that, he has no idea how to navigate his life. He walks through things willingly that are filled with pain. And God grieves over his life for these moments. What's fascinating is this is, in fact, us in every way. When we don't lift high the name of God, the true and living God, other things will come in and blur and cloud what it is we worship, how we worship. We'll build this giant buffet and take from this and add to that and kind of spice it up and we'll just be all in as Jephthah was. And miss the mark. And miss out on what it is to actually have a relationship with the true and living God. And when I think of like our day, and I, I, it's funny how you get ready for mornings and, and you don't see where things are going and then you, and you see why no one really liked the prophets. And, and I'm going to, there's going to be some, some things in here that I want you to not respond right away, but I just want you to pray through this. Just think of how the religions of capitalism, of democracy, of materialism, of individualism, think of how these gods have been raised high in our hearts. Since 2017, these religious ideas are on full display in the West. Quite honestly, because we have lifted these ideas and these religions as high as God himself, and we think they are in fact him. Two examples of this. We have lifted democracy so high. And listen, I love where I live. I love, I, I love all those things. But I want you to hear this well. We have lifted democracy so high that we failed to see that it was the Greeks that birthed it in the 5th century before Jesus actually lived. To say it another way, when Jesus says, whom the sun sets free is free indeed in John 8, it has nothing to do with the political concept that the Greeks thought of hundreds of years before Jesus lived. And when Jesus says these words in John 8, there are thousands of people who live under Roman oppression who are completely free because they understand who Christ is. They are completely free while they live under the tyranny of the Roman Empire. There are millions today because they understand what Jesus means in John 8. They are completely free and live in freedom. And they live in places like Taiwan and Vietnam and they live in places in China where there's underground churches. They live in places where it's illegal to be a Christ follower. And yet they are completely free because they understand at the heart of what Jesus is talking about in John 8. Because we have blurred the lines. We have become just like Jephthah in so many ways. The things that we are willing to do, the things that we are willing to fight for and argue over, inevitably will lead us into harm and division and argument and lack of family relationships, and countries, and on and on and on it goes. And God grieves over his people. The second example, we have lifted the religion of individualism so high, we failed to see that it was birthed in Europe somewhere around 1820. Claude Henry Saint-Simon seems to be the guy that gets the credit for this term and this idea. We have lifted this religion so high that it often trumps Jesus' words of love God and love others. We have lifted this religion so high that we forget the lines that read, greater love has no one than this than the one who is willing to lay down his life for his friends. 
We have lifted this religion so high that we fail to love our enemies well. We fail to carry each other's burdens well. To go to Romans, we fight over disputable matters all the time. To go into other places, we use our freedom in a way that Christ says, don't use your freedom to sin against me or to others. I'm going to invite Dana and team back. And as they make their way back, church family, I can't ever overstress this. In the middle of a world where there are many voices and gods and ideas that call out to us, we can't ever forget Jesus' words in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I want to stop and unpack this for a moment to finish. Jesus is not arrogantly saying something here. He is saying, I am the way. And, and I kind of grew up in, a, in a, a pretty conservative understanding of this passage where it was like, say this prayer and I'm kind of there with the Father. And as I get into the pages of those scriptures more and more and more and more and more, what I understand this passage to, to, to be actually saying is Jesus saying, my ways are the way. Listen to the true and living God because my ways are the way which are true. These are true things. I'm not just arbitrarily picking things for you to do to jump through. Out of my love for you, out of my desire for you to live well and flourish, my ways are the way. Pay attention to everything that I say in my life. Pay attention to how I teach you to pray. Pay attention how I tell you to deal with your treasure. Pay attention to how we deal with our enemies. Pay attention to how we don't judge others. Pay attention to all of my instruction because this way is the right way. It is what is true. And ironically, it is what leads me to the Father because it's all going to be through faith. I'm never going to follow the ways of Jesus if I'm not all in on faith on who he is. Because it is incredibly controversial to suggest that your ways are right and better over all ways. And out of my own life, I've come to understand that his ways are right. When God grieves over my life is when I don't pay attention to his ways. I do my own thing, and he looks at me in the same spirit as Jephthah and says, where'd you go here? Why did you think I would be pleased with this? Why did you think that this is what I had in mind for you and your family and for your life? My ways are the way, and they are truth, and they bring you to life. They bring you to a relationship with the living God. And why we are all in on who this person of Jesus is here in this place, in a context of many gods and many ideas and many religious philosophies that are out there, is there is but one who came and lived on this earth. There is but one who, get this, gave up his individualism so that you and I could be brought in through his death on a cross. And get this, for those of us who follow him by faith, I am a slave to who Christ is. I have been bought with a price. I am a debtor. I owe him everything. And through his resurrection, he stands above, head and shoulders, every other name that is out there. He is the way, truth, and life. 
No one comes to the Father except through him. His ways are right. And you'll experience what is true. And you'll experience this incredible life with the living God. Would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, it's weird how we can all become like a Jephthah if we're not careful. Things take hold. We give a disproportionate amount of time and attention to things and ideas and concepts. Which if we're, if we're spending all that time over here, we're missing out on where that time should be spent. Grounding our thoughts and our ideas in who you are. Grounding our life and every aspect of our life in who you are. And when we do this well, my goodness, we are able to navigate life in such a different way. <laughs> in a way that we're not seeing bartering with you and some foolish leverage to try to get you to do what we want you to do for us. We don't make ridiculous vows and promise things that you don't require of us. We would just humbly ask through, ironically, the way you teach us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We sit under the weight of what it is to just hallow your name. The size and the scope and the grandeur of who you are. And when we do that well, it kind of moves over into your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I have spent adequate time thinking about who you are, my desires are displaced by the wonder of your way in this world. And whatever you're asking me to do and walk in, you're going to give me all of the daily bread that I need to do that well. And it's going to be counter to what our world offers. It's going to be different. It's going to be challenging. And yet all that I need is through you and through you alone. May we be a people who lift high your name and focus a disproportionate amount of our reading and our thought and our prayer and our dialogue around who you are and allow that to shape us for your glory and for our great joy. We ask these things in your name. Amen.